morning. My name is R. Dallas Green. We're in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. Romans is Paul's magnum opus, his greatest work. Uh, you may wonder why Romans appears where it does in the Bible. Well, you have the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you have Acts, and you have Romans. Now, Romans wasn't the first written of the New Testament epistles. Most likely, James or Galatians was the first written. So why does Romans receive such uh, preeminence, such prominence? The reason is that Paul's greatest treatise concerning doctrine is the book of Romans. It will be to your great um, profit to meditate much on the book of Romans and to be reading through and to take that most excellent uh, study guide with you and engage in a small group. That's where you're really going to get connected to the community and um, help each other to grow. So Unashamed is available for you in the atrium. We have groups that you can become part of. So here we go into Romans. If I went to the doctor and he gave me an exam and he said, I don't like what I'm seeing. I don't like what I'm hearing. I'm going to order some tests. I'm going to schedule for you an MRI, a CAT scan, and uh, they get read. And the doctor calls me back and says, here's the diagnosis. You have cancer. Now, for some of you, this is not theoretical because you're actually dealing with cancer as I speak. Cindy Kirchner, who um, Sharon just prayed over her family, um, she, was, she and her family were here for about 20 years. And she went to the Lord this week. She died of cancer. John Evich, a good friend of Mark and his family, also died of cancer. So this cancer that you have is malignant and it's spreading rapidly. And the doctor says, this kind of cancer will definitely kill you. But we do have a treatment. You have to go through surgery. We're going to cut it out. And then most likely there's going to be some radiation, some chemo to follow up with. Make sure there's no more uh, residual cancer. You say, that's not the news I wanted to hear. But that's the news you needed to hear because the doctor is embracing reality. He's helping you to see things as they actually are. What we need to hear in this world of spin is the unvarnished truth. Even though there's negative, there's hope. Now, you could say concerning the report, I don't really believe the report. I really feel fine. I look in the mirror, I look pretty healthy. People tell me that I look pretty good. I don't really like doctors that tell me bad news. They're supposed to tell me good news, right? I may not like it, but it's reality, right? So Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 is dealing with some hard realities of the human condition and God's solution to the problem. So let's pick it up at chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. And we got this in three different sections. The first is the three great I am's, which we'll cover right now, the 14, 15, and 16. We'll get to three great revelations and hopefully man's response to the revelation. Romans 1, verses 14 through 16 says this. I am obligated, Paul writing, both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish, and that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then to the Gentile. Obligation is a word we don't often use, is it? 
we don't really like the word obligation. We ask the soldier, how many years do you have left? Meaning, what is your obligation to serve? Or if you're a soldier and going to school, there's some years you're going to owe the army. So what is the debt you have to pay? We tend to think of obligation in negative terms as if it is duty. But Paul here is speaking about his heart, the passion of his soul. He saw himself as a steward entrusted with a great treasure, just as you are a steward entrusted with a great treasure. And wherever he was, whatever day it was, he felt this obligation, this gospel to him was a sacred duty. Your version may say obligation, the word debtor. The word means one who is indebted, one who owes another. If you are a debtor, you are obligated to pay off the amount owed. Now, this should strike us as surprising for two reasons. First of all, salvation is a free gift. How could Paul be a debtor if we receive grace, salvation from God, as a free gift? Later, he would say that we've been justified as a gift by God's grace. And secondly, the reason it's surprising is Paul had never been to Rome and he'd never purchased anything there. How could you say, Paul, that you have a debt to those in Rome if you've never been there? Well, you can think of debt in two ways. One way is if somebody lends you $100, as long as the debt is unpaid, you owe them $100. Another way to think about debt is if someone loans you $100 and they say, when you see a certain person, give them the $100, that creates a two-way debt. You have a debt to the giver and you have a debt to the person you will give it to. Paul understood the vast riches of the gospel, deposited to his account when he became a believer. He was the recipient of a great gift, and he was charged by God to give this gift to others. He must share the gospel to discharge his debt. The same is true for you. You have been called of God. You've been set apart. You have been commissioned and entrusted. You cannot withhold the good news from somebody. You remain in debt because God has entrusted the truth to you. Someday you and I will give an account to God. Did I keep it to myself or did I give it away? Paul felt compelled to go to Rome to discharge his debt. Paul explains that he's under obligation to both Greeks and barbarians. <laughs> to the wise and foolish. When Paul says he feels an obligation, first of all, to the Greeks, to the wise, he's referring to people who are at the top of the ladder. They were the cultured and educated. They were the refined and polished. They knew the philosophies of Greece. When Paul said he felt an obligation to the barbarians, he's referring to people on the lowest rung of the ladder. The barbarians were the crude, and the rude, lacking social graces. The barbarians hadn't learned to read or write. They couldn't understand much, and didn't, no one understood when, when they talked. Paul is saying, I feel this obligation for everybody from the top of the ladder to the bottom of the ladder and in between. Now, some will say, I don't really like the word duty or obligation in the Christian life. I'm free to live however I want to live. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. The fact is, as believers, we have an obligation to the Lordship of Christ. 
Wherever the Lord sends you, you are under obligation to speak to people as God would allow about Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about standing on a street corner yelling at people. I'm talking about building bridges toward people, getting to know them and their stories, serving them, befriending them, and as opportunities present, sharing Jesus Christ with them. You are, whether you like it or not, under obligation. Secondly, he says, I am eager. I am eager to go to you in Rome to preach the good news to you. Now, eagerness, unlike obligation, we see obligation often as a negative, but eagerness as a positive. Eagerness speaks of somebody who is ready, someone who is fired up. You can tell a team when they're ready for the game. I know many of you Washington football team are lamenting this morning that your team went down, but they played well, and the new quarterback played well. Washington lost, by the way, 31 to 23 last night. So, John, your Eagles are out, the Washington's out. we got a lot of time now. <laughs> well, you can tell when a team is ready because they've done their homework, the coaches put together a good game plan, the players are prepared to do their part. You can tell when a business is ready to go because the employees are trained well, they know their role, they know how to contribute, they're focused on serving the customer's need, they know the value they can contribute, they're eager to get going. Rome was the capital city of the Roman Empire. It was said that all the roads lead to Rome. The city was built on seven hills. There were buildings in Rome made of marble. There were statues to the famous people of Rome. There was a Colosseum of Rome. There was the Circus Maxima. There was Caesar's palace in Rome. But Paul wasn't interested in going to Rome as a sightseer. He wasn't going there as a tourist. He was eager to go to Rome to preach the good news to those in Rome. You see, Rome had a few Christians sprinkled around in their house churches. But overall, Rome was full of lost people. You could say that Rome was a cesspool of iniquity. Rome was known for its cruelty and corruption. It was known for its idolatry and its immorality. So what was Paul saying? I am eager to take the gospel to the people of Rome. You see, if he simply lives out the gospel, which we're called to do to demonstrate the gospel, people would never hear the gospel. They would say he's a good man, but they would go to hell. Paul is eager to preach the gospel, whether he is in Corinth, Ephesus, Rome, wherever he travels, because his greatest passion was to preach the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Where's your Rome? Where do you have a burden for? What's the city you care in your heart? What's the people you care in your heart? Maybe it's for young moms who are stressed out by the pandemic, trying to be a mom and a wife and a teacher and a worker. Maybe there are days when you wondered how you'd get it all done. You're overwhelmed with life. But somebody walk with you through this season of life, and maybe you have a burden for other women. Maybe your burden is for immigrants. You just don't know what they left behind to come to this land. I was talking to one with Debbie this week. His name is Pablo. He told us about his native El Salvador and all the violence that was in his city and what he left behind to come here to give another opportunity to his family. 
You have a burden for the Pablos of the world to learn our language and culture to find our Jesus. Maybe you have a burden for the military. You yourself have served. You, go, you know they go off and they don't come back the same. But they need someone to process their life with. Someone who's been there. And you have a heart for them. You see, Paul had a burden in his heart. He had an eagerness to go. Paul, Rome was the capital of the Roman world where flagrant depravity was prevalent everywhere. Rome was the most immoral, idolatrous, incestuous place in the world. And Paul was eager to go there, to preach the gospel there. You see, what Paul knew is the personal experience of the gospel. He knew how the gospel had changed him. He knew that the gospel had the potential to change other people's lives. And so therefore, he was eager to go to Rome that the people of Rome would influence the world. There is somebody in your life whom you have written off as impossible to reach with the gospel. Paul didn't believe that anybody was out of the reach of God, that God pursues people. And then he says, thirdly, I am not ashamed. I love this part. I'm not under obligation, but I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of my relationship with God. I'm not ashamed to identify with God himself. I'm not ashamed that he identified with me. You see, this is a double negative to say, I'm not ashamed. But a double negative in Hebrew makes a positive. Paul could have said, I'm fired up about the gospel. I'm pumped up about the gospel. So why is Paul so eager to preach it? It's because the gospel has the supernatural power to liberate believers from the bondage to sin. It doesn't matter how sinful a person is, who they are, what they have done. The gospel is more powerful than our sin. It's more powerful than any lifestyle. The word power comes from the Greek word dunamis. You know, Alfred Nobel, who developed dynamite. He was looking for a word that has explosive power. So he went to a Greek scholar and he said, tell me the word in Greek that means explosive power. And he said, dunamis. And so Nobel called his invention dynamite. The gospel is the dynamic, explosive power of God unto salvation. There is no more powerful message in the world. No message makes a deeper impact on a person's life. No message has the power to change somebody from the inside out. The gospel is the div divine power to revolutionize a person's life that they're no longer the safe, same. Because if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things become new. When the gospel explodes in a person's life, they are no longer the same. It's a dramatic change. And if that dramatic change hasn't happened in your life, you haven't yet received the gospel. Let me say it again. If the change has not happened to you, it's because you have not received the gospel. There are people sitting in this room watching online who have not bowed their knee to Jesus and asked them into their heart to be their savior. You see, there's some bad news coming in this book of Romans about the condition of mankind. But the good news will always be 
the gospel. The gospel means good news, good tidings. You see, in their day, there's people that lived in the city. Their generals or armies would go outside the city to battle. And when the battle was over, a herald would come back to the city to announce good news. The battle has been won. And when that herald came, the people would rejoice that the battle had been won. So I come to you to say this, this word to you, that the battle has been fought and the battle has been won. The battle has been won by the person of Jesus Christ. And all who believe in him receive eternal life and forgiveness for their sins. And we're just getting started. The third I am is I am not ashamed. So now we have the three revelations of Romans chapter 1. Look with me at verse 17. It says, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. You must know that God himself is righteous. God is pure and that God is holy. Sin is an affront to God's very nature. Paul himself had lived most of his life trying to earn the righteousness of God by keeping the law. But then God would intercept him on the road to Damascus. He would see this bright, shining light sh shining brighter than the sun. And Paul would realize that he was himself in the darkness, and Christ is the light. And he would come to believe in Christ. And he says, the former things that I count as lost, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from trying to keep the law, but a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. A revelation is a, re is a revealing of what was concealed. If a master artist made a piece of art and brought it to the gallery, there was to be a reveal. The painting would be covered with a canvas. And then at the revealing, the canvas be taken off so that people could see what was concealed, now revealed. The first great revelation is of God's righteousness. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness which is by faith from first to last. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. The big question is, how does a sinner, if we agree with God that we are all sinners, how does a sinner who is under the judgment of God, under the condemnation of God, get declared innocent, righteous? You see, we're all sinners. We all deserve God's judgment. God would not be unjust in judging us for our sin because judgment is what we deserve. And we are hardwired to try to earn the righteousness of God by our good works. The Jewish people believed that they could keep the law and earn the righteousness of God. But if our righteousness came from our own efforts, it would be a self-righteousness. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. You see, it's as if we find ourselves in the penalty box and we think there's something we can do to get ourselves out of the penalty box. A Jewish person could believe they were circumcised. Or religious people may believe that maybe getting baptized is sufficient. So what is this righteousness of God? The righteousness of God is revealed to us through 
justification. Justification is a word that every Christian should know. Because justification is the scene of the courtroom. Paul in the book of Romans is the prosecuting attorney bringing forth the evidence. We are standing before God and we have no defense. But then there's Jesus, the righteous one. He is the son of God who has done no wrong. And he went around doing good, healing people of their diseases, performing miracles. He was innocent, the lamb of God. What happened at the cross was the righteous one died for the unrighteous one. The innocent died for the guilty. We sinners can look to the cross and believe we deserve to be punished, but Jesus took our punishment. We deserved condemnation, but Jesus was condemned in our place. We deserved judgment, but Jesus was judged for our sins. We believe that we are sinners, but Jesus is our substitute. And we trust in Jesus alone for our salvation. And when that happens, God bangs the gavel and he declares us innocent. He declares us righteous. He declares us justified um, by God. You see, justification is what God does for us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. You can't save yourself. You can't justify yourself. You can't live perfectly. But God is just. So how does a just God make unjust people just? He justifies them by faith. So here's justification. Justification is an act of God whereby he declares sinners righteous while still in their sinning state. That's a mouthful. Christ says, my righteousness has been imputed to you, my innocence, my perfection. The wrath of God, your rebellion against God, is now absorbed by Christ. And the resurrection is the objective evidence that the bill has been paid in full. Revelation number two, the wrath of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Salvation itself means deliverance from great danger. Salvation means to be rescued from ultimate ruin. What is the danger that the gospel saves us from? Well, we've said we have all sinned. We all deserve judgment. God is righteous, and God gets angry about sin. Verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. The first sin of humankind toward God is to dismiss God as being irrelevant, to believe that God doesn't exist. And the result of that is injustice or wickedness, sins against one another. God steaming hot vengeance and fiery hatred of sin is bearing down on every unbeliever. Jonathan Edwards said, all without Christ are sinners in the hands of an angry God. To be saved is to be saved from God's wrath. You see, there's only one way to be saved from God's wrath, the gospel of God's grace. Souls need to be saved from eternal destruction. How do you get justified then, Pastor R? To everyone who believes, they are justified by faith. The sole condition to receive salvation from God 
is by faith alone in Christ alone. And there are three components to saving faith. The first of them is an intellectual component. You must understand that who you are and what you have done, and you have to understand who Christ is, the Son of God, and what he has done. He has taken your place upon a cross. Faith also has a heart component. You feel sorry for your sins. God, I'm sorry for what I have done. And faith has a trust component. You must put your faith, your trust in Christ. As long as you are trusting in yourself or trusting in what you have done, you are not trusting in Christ and what Christ has done. We look away from ourselves to Christ to put our faith in him and him alone. Now, to some, this doctrine I'm teaching now about the wrath of God is very offensive. They don't see how this reconciles to the very nature of God. They've heard that God is loving, but they don't understand that God is righteous, that God is pure. I ask the question, does God have the right to be angry about sin? I'm a father and a husband and a grandfather. If somebody deliberately hurts one of my kids or grandkids, I am angry because that is unfair, that is unjust. You see, if I'm a fair and equitable and just person and somebody does something unjust, unfair, that makes me angry. You see, divine, God's divine wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. You see, he's not telling us necessarily what we want to hear. He's telling us what we need to hear. The apostle now is not sugarcoating the truth. He's not giving us the fine print. He's making it in bold relief. He's making no apologies. He's telling us the unvarnished truth about the condition of man. Look at verse 19. It says, <clears throat> well, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that man is without excuse. Revelation number three is of God's invisible attributes. You see, God makes a general revelation of himself to all people. There's no question to anybody who lives on any continent, on any island, about God's general revelation of himself. That which is known of God refers to the truth of God's existence and his attributes. This knowledge is evident. It means the truth of God is clearly seen. It's obvious to all people. Divine self-disclosure is out in the open. You see, God has left behind his fingerprints everywhere. You see the handprints of God everywhere. If you were driving last night over Braddock Mountain about 5 o'clock, it was a gorgeous sunset. God was painting the sky in all different colors. Every rising of the sun or the setting of the sun is a testament to a God who makes the sun to rise and the sun to set. You see, it's God who put the stars in the sky. It's God who arranged the planets with order. It's God who put us here upon this earth. Creation reveals the invisible attributes of our creator. 
The invisible God revealed himself through his creation, you see. Creation speaks of God being eternal. If there is a creation, then there is a creator, you understand. The creator existed before the creation. You see, there had to be a first cause. God is the cause, and creation is the effect. If there was no God, then there was no creation. But since there is an eternal God, there was a beginning to creation, and he brought everything into being out of nothing. An all-powerful, eternal God is the only explanation for the existence of the universe. So that when man stands before God, there will be no excuse because God has revealed himself to us through creation. That is a light of who God is. But we come now to man's response to this revelation. Look at verse 21. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Unbelieving man's response to God's revelation is rejection. Despite the clear revelation of God, man by and large has rejected him. You think the world would honor God and give thanks to him. They receive the truth of God's existence and his character. But rather than desiring more knowledge of God, the very opposite, opposite is occurring. Though God made himself known to all people, people have chosen to turn away. They did not give God the glory he deserved, the thanks he deserved. They did not see God as a source of all good in their lives. They did not thank God for all he provided. They did not thank him for the sun, the rain, the food. When a person rejects God, they become, it says here, futile in their speculations. Futile means their thinking becomes worthless, vain, and foolish. You know what I think when I see many talk shows on television? Their thinking is vain and foolish and worthless. They conjured up in their minds, their darkened minds, their empty speculations about who God is. They imagine God is someone he isn't. It says it's sec the second response is pride. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Foolish comes from the word we get moron from. You know what happened, brothers and sisters? They became morons. He's saying God-rejectors became morons, incapable of having any true thought of God, rejecting the light they received. Rejecting the light increases the darkness. The sin of rejecting the truth about God results in a devastating effect on our thinking processes. Rejecting the truth always short-circuits man's thinking abilities. Their foolish hearts were darkened. It was as if, here's the light, and God blew out the light and left them to grope in the dark about who he is and what is true. Professing to be wise, it says, they became fools. The arrogant claimed to be so wise, beating their own chest, elevating themselves above the rest, proclaiming their brilliance, declaring themselves that they're wiser than God. And now the terrible exchange. They traded the incorruptible God for idols. The last result of this downward trend is idolatry. 
They traded the glory of the incorruptible God for idols. You ask, Pastor R, what is an idol? An idol is whenever anything takes the place of God in our lives. It's something we feel we could not live without. It's something we feel is absolutely necessary for life and happiness. In Exodus 20, it says that God says an idol is something that we bow down to. An idol is something we serve. An idol is something we love more than God, something we give great weight to. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory, latching godlike weight onto created things. Idolatry was behind the first sin, and it's behind every sin since. So I ask you this question out of love. What is your idol? You know, if you go to India, it's pretty easy to see the idols because there's these um, Hindu temples and people are bowing down to these idols. If you go to Brazil, you'd see people that are pretty crazy about soccer. It's kind of everything to Brazilians. In America, we have the American idol. Somebody singing with talent, rewarded by money and success. What is your idol? What have you allowed to usurp the place of God? It may not be immediately apparent to you, so I'm going to give you some questions to ponder as we think about idolatry. Question number one, what one thing do you most hope for in your future? Career success, a certain salary, getting married, seeing your kids make it, having the respect of teammates? What is it that without it, life would hardly seem worth living? Question number two, what is the one thing in life you most fear losing? You've seen recently, in recent days, the market going up. Do you fear a financial reversal of the markets going down, of losing what you have put your money into? One of the things that I've grappled with over the years, I'm going to make a dumb mistake and lose everything in terms of financial investments. I must admit to you, this is an area where I've wrestled with in terms of having greater importance. Question number three, if you could change one thing about yourself now, what would it be? Would you lose 30 pounds? Call it the pandemic 15 or the pandemic 20 or the pandemic 30. For some, the idol in America is our appearance of how we look. That's why we work out so much, right? Because we want to look good. We put great value on our outer appearance. I mean, Planet Fitness now is giving free memberships for the month of January. And Weight Watchers has a deal in January also. So one of the idols in America is our appearance. But also one of our idols in America is the food we eat. We have comfort foods we eat. We eat all the stuff we know we shouldn't eat, right? Which violates the other idol of our appearance. Question number four. What have you sacrificed the most for? Sacrifice and worship often go together. What have you worked the hardest to get? To get the scholarship? to get the perfect body, to land the job, to be the best in your field, to get to a certain income level? 
Now, I want you to think about this next one. What triggers depression in you? I want you to think about this for a moment. What is it that makes you really, really sad? Is it when the kids don't call? Now, there's a human longing for connection. It's really a good thing when the kids call and we get a chance to talk to one another, hear their voices and hear what's going on in their life. But when the kids don't call, it may trigger to you depression. The fact that your marriage doesn't look like it's going to get any better. Maybe at the heart of your, at, at your heart, your marriage has become an idol. You're at a certain age and you're not married yet. You don't get the recognition you deserve. You see, depression is triggered when something we deemed essential for life is denied to us. Augustine said that things like worry, fear, and sadness and deep deep depression are smoke from the fires rising from the altars of idolatry. What he's saying is, if something is making you severely depressed, so sad, it just might be that what God's uncovering to you in the midst of a pandemic is something that's taken his place, usurped the place of God. You see, that's why Paul said, I am under obligation to preach the gospel. Because whatever city he went to, people turned from their idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven. That's why he said, I'm eager to preach the gospel. Because when you're a a worshiper of an idol, that you're a slave to that idol. That idol has taken a place in your heart it should never have. And that's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for every person who believes. You see, what we need to be delivered from is that which has taken the place of God in our hearts. Idols promise fulfillment, but they deliver disillusionment. Idols produce fear and anxiety. We live afraid that our idol will be taken from us. The economy may crash. The Democrats may take over. Waiting for a laugh. (laughs) Thank you. My small business may fail. My loved one may get cancer. Whatever it is, whatever it is, that's the business God wants to do with you this morning. God wants to move that idol out of your heart and put himself in the place of your greatest love. To love him with all your heart and your mind, your soul to smash that idol. Pray with me. Father, the gospel is powerful and it's transformational. And Paul knew this. And Paul felt an obligation. He felt an eagerness. He felt he was not ashamed. And God, we are not ashamed of the gospel. We're not ashamed of the power that you have to revolutionize our lives, to change us from the inside out. And we will be bold to admit, Lord, that we have struggled ourselves with things in this pandemic. Our sense of independence, our autonomy, we feel at times overwhelmed. We feel at times saddened. We look at the events that have happened this week and we feel saddened, Lord. We feel as if there's a great crumble in our nation. So, Lord, we look to you to restore what is broken. We look to you, Lord, for our salvation. We believe we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save our country. 
But our Savior has come. His name is Jesus Christ. And with our eyes closed and our heads bowed, if you need that Savior today, I'd like to just lift up your hand. No one's really looking around. Thank you for putting your hands up. God, I need a Savior. We need a Savior. We are sinful, Lord. We need salvation from our sin. You are not pleased with unrighteousness and wickedness, injustice. Your wrath is revealed against this. But God, your love is greater and your love is able to save us. We receive your love, Lord. Save us, Lord, from this world. Save us from this sin. Save us from the enemy. Save us from your wrath, Lord. We call upon you, Jesus, to be our Savior. And we choose to follow you, Lord, all the days of our life. We do need you. Thank you for speaking to us. Show us our idols, Lord, that we can crush them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my very favorite stories about salvation, some friends of mine went to the Kmart. Now, our Kmart has gone down here. There's a new Ollie's coming in on Golden Mile. But back in the day, there's the Kmart. They went to the Kmart to shop, and they were leaving the Kmart, and there was an elderly lady, and she had her bag of goods, and she dropped them. And so my friends picked them up and put them back in the bags for her. And she said, you guys are really nice guys. Um, she said, yeah, we're, we're Christians. Um, would you like to hear what we believe? And they had the privilege of sharing the gospel there in the parking lot with this elderly lady. And that day she got saved. And they came back to say that, you know, Kmart really is the saving place. And you know what? God has put us, you know, in our various spheres of influence online, in neighborhoods, in families, workplaces. And there just may be somebody this year who's going to get saved because of your influence, because of a relationship you will build, building that bridge into their life, getting another story, hearing your story, hearing your testimony of what God has done in your life. When Paul proclaimed his testimony, there was power in it because God changed him. And God is in the business of changing us and giving us these opportunities. So I just want to pray. Father, you are our God. We have put our faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We believe he truly is the son of God who took our place on a cross. We want to follow him. We ask you, Lord, to open up to us opportunities this year in front of us that we could be a witness. We could see people come from unbelief to belief, from darkness to light, come into the kingdom of God. We pray that we'll have many balloons to celebrate on that cross. We'll have many people in our groups who will hear this good news and believe and put their trust in you. We'll see this church expand and grow as your kingdom grows. So, Lord, use us. We offer ourselves to you, Lord, as instruments, vessels, set apart, commissioned, entrusted with this great treasure that we would share this treasure with others. For as Paul said, I have a debt. I am eager and I am not ashamed. God use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.